1: Vision Daily Briefing, live without a net, Friday edition. I'm live with Ed Harrison and Jack Farley. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you.
2: Great to be here. Ash, you, you have the net, right?
1: There is no net, Jack. There is no net.
2: <laughs> Ash, you had one job. <laughs>
1: <laughs> talking of one job, uh, you guys obsessively watching markets all week long. Your one job. Tell us what are you seeing? What's crossed your attention and what's important for
3: people to know right now? Hey, Jack. I mean, you and I right before Ash started talking, we were talking about the same thing. Earnings. Uh, I know the market's down today, and you're gonna give us the numbers, Ash, but earnings have been really good and, and Jack. He ran through a bunch of numbers that were very nice. Uh, why don't you tell us uh, what those numbers look like, Jay?
2: Sure, Ed. Well, so far, about um, you know, a few hundred companies have reported their earnings of the S and P 500, and about 90% of them have actually beaten the expectations from the street. Now, many say that those expectations are artificially low, so to look, so to make the companies look good, and of course, that's true. But 90% is still very high. In fact, I was reading a paper earlier that found that the average beat um, for S&P 500 companies over the past five years was around 74%. So uh, 90% is very good. And to give you another point of context, in the KBW Bank Index, it's an index that has 24 bank stocks. Uh, Ed, do you want to take a guess? How many of those 24 bank stocks beat uh, their earnings?
3: Well, I'm guessing since I saw uh, on my uh, screen that bank stocks hit 52-week highs today, that the answer is every single one.
2: Yes, that is exactly true. I'm actually surprised that you got that. And um, yeah, every 24 of 24 made that. I was making a chart earlier. It's it's a remarkable chart. So yeah, earnings good across the board. Today, in terms of price action, you had Asia open up very weak. The Hang Seng down about 2%. uh, That weakness bled into US equity markets. um, can tell us about that later. Bonds are very flat. You saw a little commodity weakness as well. But um, that's the price action. I want to get into the big themes with you guys. Yeah,
1: let me just say before we uh, got in too deep, for people who have uh, missed the close, uh, Dow Jones Industrial Average closing at 33,874, down about 185 points on the day or down 0.5-ish percent. S&P closing at 41.81, down uh, around three quarters of a percent. And NASDAQ, Uh, Off about uh, 0.85% closing below the 14,000 level at 13,962. Jack, I got a question for you. When we talk about this, uh, this, you know, beat, uh, miss calculus, uh, is it worth pointing out, as you you point out? Obviously, uh, there is uh, clearly the thought that companies, uh, put them a little bit lower than they'd like so they can have a beat. But what about the magnitude of some of these beats? I'm thinking Google here. Uh, clearly, that must matter, the degree to which a company beats the earnings. And I'll just throw one other thing out for you, Jack. Uh, in my conversation with uh, Tommy Thornton uh, on Tuesday, he observed that when there are blowout beats uh, and companies don't get rewarded by it for investors, that's a
2: sign that maybe, potentially, things may start to be looking a little toppy. Ash, two great points there. Yeah, You mentioned Google. So the expectation from the street for adjusted earnings per share was $15.63. It reported $26.29. So a uh, surprise of 68%. Now, you sometimes see that with small caps that maybe aren't that well covered. But for a huge mega cap behemoth like Google, it really was quite striking. And then to that point of Tommy Thornton, you're absolutely right. We did see an earnings beat of about 9 10% uh, of Microsoft. But even that, Ah, uh, the Wall Street analysts, even though their number were beat, the street was not very happy with that stock actually trading down. Um, so you did see that phenomenon that that Tommy mentioned.
3: Yeah, Ed, what say you? Yeah, you know, I'm thinking about the Fang M, uh, and I'm thinking about them as the new value. I know this is kind of uh, um, I was talking to someone about this earlier uh, in an interview, and you know, when they're trading at uh, 30 times earnings, it's hard to call them value stocks, but. They're the new stalwarts in in an interesting way because uh, a lot of them have traded sideways from a PE perspective or down. Let me tell you across the board what the PEs of the Fang M are. We're looking at 34 times for Microsoft. Uh, Facebook is trading at 28 times. Apple is trading at uh, almost 30 times, just 29.95. Amazon is the is the outlier, but they're only trading at 66 times. And remember, that's because they're supposedly reinvesting so much money into the business that you know the net income doesn't represent the free cash flow that they're spending off. And then finally, if you look at Google, um, aka Alphabet, they're trading at 31 times earnings. So what that's telling you is, is that these biggest companies are trading at multiples that are much more in line with the market. Um, uh, they're not trading at the huge premium that they traded to the market in. And then so when we think about where you're gonna invest your money going forward in, in this economy, that's those are places where you're not gonna get beat up. Uh, whether or not you have inflation, whether or not, you know, um there's some sort of uh, lockdown uh, that comes out of the blue, because obviously they, they did well in the pandemic. These are becoming the new stalwarts to invest in. Uh, they're the new value. Uh, That's uh, how I'm thinking of it. I'm still trying to put together a thesis in terms of thinking about it, but I'm not looking at it as in Microsoft was down on the day. I'm looking at it over time that they're much more in line with the market. They represent compelling value at these levels relative to the rest of the market. Yeah, I mean, the average, it looks like, the
1: average uh, P.E. on the NASDAQ 100 right now is over 40, 40 spot 3.4 uh, on 4.23, according to the most recent data from Wall Street Journal Markets.
2: Yeah. yeah. And so uh, go ahead, Jack. Well, I, I think both of you make such good good points. Obviously, these stocks are growth stocks because they grow very quickly. Typically, people, investors assigning a premium to that. But they are trading at a price-to-earnings multiple that is somewhat reasonable. I'd also add, I'm never not, you know, I'm a journalist. I don't really opine on these matters. But on an absolute basis, I I don't really have a view. But relatively, I mean, where else are you going to put your money? You're going to put it in a place like a stock like Chipotle, which has a very, it's a fixed asset business that has a price-to-earnings multiple in in the 50s. Are you going to invest it in some, let's say, uh, SPAC where the CEO has never had a real job? You know, I mean, I think that. the fangs that they remain—they remain a very good place um, uh, to put your money. They've had extremely consistent returns. I also think that one reason passive has outperformed active is that the active managers try and be very clever and you know underweight fangs, and that that has really uh, hurt them. By fangs, I mean of course, uh, Facebook, Amazon, Alphabet, uh, you know, Google, those sorts of stocks. Yeah,
3: and and let me say by the way, uh, here's an interesting uh, wrinkle here: is if you go across the board and you look at the beta of these stocks. And how they're trading, uh, it, this goes right in line with what you're saying. Alphabet is trading at uh, you know, its beta is 1.03, Amazon has a beta of 1.15, uh, Apple has a beta of 1.21, Facebook 1.3. And then to top it off, Microsoft, uh, the Big Daddy, 0.79. So th- this is a stock that the volatility is incredibly low relative to the market. Yeah. I mean
1: Microsoft has been just a cash machine now uh for years uh, and that seems to be the case uh, moving forward and you actually see that now in the fact that it's got a lower volatility than the overall S&P.
3: So we, here's the question I have for you guys. Uh when we look at something like Amazon, I think Amazon made eight uh net income of something like 8 billion. Uh their trailing 12-month earnings are 26.9, you know, 27 billion dollars. Uh is that a high watermark uh, for growth for them? Can they continue to replicate that? Are the beats very difficult going forward? Because I've heard a lot of people talking about um, this coming quarter as going to be the, a more difficult quarter, and maybe this is why these guys are are, uh, are selling off is because you know buy the uh, rumor, sell the news. There's nothing else to be gained. What do you think?
2: You know, uh, you the
3: one? Yeah. yeah, sure. I mean, look, this is an interesting
1: question. I think people who have been uh, bearish on Amazon, even at uh, you know valuations above sixty, uh, have historically uh, run into some problems with that uh, with that short trade. I think it's fair to say. Uh, but look, there is a question here ultimately about what the law of large numbers starts to look like. We are at uh, one point seven five trillion dollars or so uh, in market cap on Amazon right now, and you have to wonder how much growth can there be. When you're approaching two trillion dollars, now I suppose you could say uh, that Amazon can continue to grow and become more powerful and represent a greater percentage of, for example, uh, cloud services or retail. Uh, but there's a certain point uh, where you begin to attract the attention of regulators, and regulators look and go, "Hey, when the market cap of this country uh, company uh, starts to be a reasonable fraction of U.S. GDP, maybe that's uh, maybe that's time to take a look at it." So. It seems to me, and again, you've been wrong if you've gone uh, if you've gone against it. But at a certain point, you have to wonder: Does the growth uh, begin to taper from a market cap perspective? Is there really just simply no way for it to continue going on? I don't know. That's my thought. What do you think, Jack?
2: I happen to believe that the fang stocks. Uh, do offer opportunity relative to the other stocks, especially the hyper growth stocks. I think Amazon has been an incredibly consistent performer, and I, I do think that there are opportunities for uh, for it to grow. Yeah, but when does it? So it when does they, it max? Let me
3: give you a, a thought here uh, about these stocks, because you know when Apple released their earnings, they uh, said that they were going to be buying back like ninety billion dollars in shares. Uh, someone said that that's you know more than Seventy components of the S and P 500 to the total market capitalization, and and what's more is you know they they up their dividend by a ridiculous amount at the same time. These are now the stalwarts. These are the companies. It's almost as if uh, you know another thing in certain in terms of talking about value or the betas being like one is. Th- these are companies that are almost the bond proxies in a in a world in which you know. People are concerned about bonds if you want to get a dividend uh, or, or you know you want to get a coupon, clip the coupon of, via the the dividend of of Apple, knowing that you know they're going to trade with the market. they are the market in so in some cases yeah, yeah. trade with the
2: market in terms of volatility, but consistently outperformance so bond like volatility equity like returns i I also add that you know these companies. Ash, you make such a good point about regulation, but I think that really is the only headwind. And if these companies can manage to finagle their way out and you know not be regulated, not be broken up, one uh, thinks of Facebook, of course, as being most vulnerable to that. I think that you know the 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 highway is there, the the runway is there, and you know to to echo Michael Saylor, who uh, has this, his view on Bitcoin. He said, "If you're not long, you're short," and I kind of think that way about the fangs. If you're not long the stocks. Which really are the bedrock of the American economy and have shown amazing potential to consistently grow, then you're kind of short them.
1: All right, I'll make the counter case just because it needs to be made. Look, <laughs> uh, if you were to say the phrase, uh, the only thing that we see for this company that looks like a headwind to me uh, is the potential threat of regulation, and it was Standard Oil in 1911. Uh, it would be a pretty consistent headwind. Look. Uh, I'll throw out some numbers. Uh, About 21 trillion—that's the size of uh, US GDP 2019. Uh, Amazon now, again, approaching a market cap of 1.8 trillion. Uh, Is there a certain point when it crosses, say, 10% of US GDP, uh, where folks uh, on on the other side of Pennsylvania Avenue in the Capitol start to say? Wow, this is really something that begins to look uh, like it poses a threat, a concentration risk to the broader US economy, competitiveness, uh, small business, uh, a whole series of other risks. I'm not saying that that's a certainty. I'm just suggesting that there is a point uh, at which there becomes a, almost a kind of de facto ceiling uh, for growth on these companies. And it, the trajectory just can't continue indefinitely.
3: I'm not saying. Interestingly, let me let me give you the counter to that. Because as soon as you said that, I said let me look up the return on equity for Standard Oil. Because I immediately thought of uh, Standard Oil of of uh, Indiana, Standard Oil of uh, New Jersey, Standard Oil of New York. I mean, the broken up pieces of Standard Oil, uh, Chevron, Exxon, Mobil. I mean, they are behemoth companies for a long time. You probably outperformed. You say the same thing about AT and T. You look at the broken up pieces, Verizon being the most obvious uh, uh, company to be, I would call, the, the new uh, AT&T as opposed to AT&T itself. Um, you know, how would you do in terms of your return on equity with, with that? Uh, so it's almost as if perhaps being broken up isn't a bad thing for them. Uh, it takes the overhang of regulation off of the companies, and they can still grow in their respective verticals. Yeah, absolutely. I grew up in AT&T country out in northwestern New Jersey and that
1: 1984 divestiture was really a benchmark uh, for uh what then was kind of the almost the Microsoft of its day. You could think of it as a, it was sort of the evil empire uh in a way. Uh the Microsoft of what Microsoft was in 2000, maybe what Facebook was in 2020. Uh AT&T was in the 1980s. Uh, and you look at what came out of that—all the what they called the R-box, the original Bell operating companies. Uh, but in addition to that, companies like, as you point out, uh, Verizon uh, and clearly, and Lucent, which was for a time uh, a market leader, obviously made some bad bets. Uh, but you really can't blame uh, the the mistakes that some of those uh some of those breakup companies made uh, on the breakup. Certainly, it seems like the potential to liberate an enormous amount of value for the shareholders. But And this is the interesting point. Is really the company being operated for the value of the shareholder, and might they not do better uh, with a divestiture scenario? But when you have these incredibly powerful, charismatic executives uh, who are the founders of these companies, leading them, uh, whether or not they retain the CEO role, whether they call themselves chairman of the board, they are clearly a massive, massive force uh, in these companies. And I'd add one other thing, which is the multiple classes uh, of common stock which allow these founders to have super voting rights uh, in these companies in perpetuity. You take a guy uh, like Mark Zuckerberg, who's clearly in his 30s right now. Very long runway; could be running this company for 50 years. By the way, I'm not saying that this is a bad thing. Uh, the ca- you could argue the counter case, which is you had great American companies that were run by charismatic founders who had a vision, uh, who then uh, took the company public. You think of Steve Jobs being the most obvious example, lost control of his own company, uh, Apple, the quintessential example. Of the great American company today went through years of significant difficulties after John Scully fired Steve Jobs.
3: Yeah, uh, it, all of these questions. I mean, I don't think we have the answers, but at least we have the questions, right? That's, That's right. the important thing. I, uh, we're, we're definitely at a, a critical juncture in this particular cycle because uh, all of the rotation that we have that was emblematic of the reflation trade is now moving to the reopening, the full reopening. And the full reopening trade, it's not clear to me what that trade is uh, and and what the pitfalls in that trade are. And I think the segue uh, from equities into any other topic is because everyone's talking about inflation. I don't know if you saw what, uh, the, um, what the BEA released today in terms of personal income and outlays, but I, uh, I quoted it on Twitter saying that uh, you know, the, the, the first line that they had there was something in the order of uh, 21%. They said personal income increased $4.21 trillion or 21.1% at a monthly rate in March. Uh, that's a ridiculous amount. This is the wall of money that's about to hit the economy and a lot of people uh, are are short on on the bond side because they think that's going to lead to inflation and I know Jack he's probably got the stats to uh, to talk about that. Yeah, well let's
2: see this is an article from Bloomberg that uh, one in four shares in the ETF TLT it's a 12 billion dollar bond fund that uh, owns long duration treasuries, duration of 20 years and more. One in four of those shares is now sold short. So you have the potential for a minor short squeeze phenomenon, if, if not a squeeze, a phenomenon where as the price increases, uh, you know, sellers have to sell. And you know, gamma squeezes, these things happen every day. Um, but yeah, there's there's a short, very high short interest that we haven't seen since 2017. So the bond short remains on.
1: And let me just say, uh, for people who are not uh, as uh, following this as closely as Jack is, uh, when TLT uh, rises in price, yields fall, and the obvious uh, converse is true as well. Uh, so that's a play for rising rates when you see that number falling.
2: Uh, yep. And selling something short is when you sell something like that you don't own. So it's like a double or triple negative. Yeah. And if you buy a put option on it, then uh, you're Dealers have to synthetically have that position, so it's basically like when you go to put option, you're 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 having the same impact in the
3: market, pretty much. You're melting so, brains, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm so, not even gonna let you talk about the uh, about gamma hedging. As never. soon as he starts talking about synthetic, you know that he's melting brains. Someone someone's pounding beers right now and watching this. You know, <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, you know, I think there was one uh, RVDB where you were accused of pounding a beer mid uh, midstream there, Ash. uh Oh yeah, exactly. It was probably green tea, ubiquitous <laughs> <laughs> green tea. Excellent. So uh, let me tell you, I think that it, it is interesting when Jack talks about the short and the, uh, the potential for a short squeeze because if you think back about the price action during the reopening, or sorry, during the reflation trade, we went from 90 basis points on the 10-year U.S. Treasury all the way up to 175. I think we got as high as 178 before we slid back into the 150s and now we're just above 160. So the question is uh where do we go from here? And that slide that we had from the 170s, the high 170s to the 150s coincided with a massive unwinding of a short position. But it seems almost from the the numbers that Jack is giving us that that short position is back on. And to me that says not not that we're definitely going to get uh, the long bond uh, with yields that going higher, it could mean that we actually get yields going lower very quickly because everyone has to cover their shorts uh, because of a short squeeze.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to LipsonAds.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com.
1: Yeah. Ed, something that I know that you're passionate about, more of the big picture structural question, uh, is talking a little bit about the Phillips curve and what some of the economic philosophy uh, is behind this and why it's happening. But first, I should say if you see Jack and I getting brighter suddenly for no reason, the sun has just come out on the Upper East
3: Side. Yeah, it's the wrong one. It's, it's not the beer that you guys are pounding.
0: No,
3: no. <laughs> so, Ed. Well, you want to talk about the mills because I got a question. You
2: said that you know it, the yields could go lower because of the short squeeze, but that's like saying, oh, this stock went down so much it has to go back up. You know, so, some sub stocks that appear to be a value, I think they're a value trap. Like, what if there's a reason that everyone is short bonds, and namely the economy is reopening before our eyes? You know, commodity is soaring. Um, you know, so so I don't and know. The you know do you
1: wanna...
3: that, and the bet is that rates are going to rise, right? Just... Exactly. exactly. Well, th- that's exactly why. Uh, uh... Ash is making the segue into the Phillips curve because, yeah, that's what people are saying. I mean, I think Muhammad Al-Arian says it pretty well, uh, and there are some other people who are saying this as well. Bill Dudley, the former New York uh, Fed uh, president, they're saying that basically what's going to happen is is that it used to be that the Fed was preemptive about inflation. Uh, they would see signs that inflation were percolating, like the things that you were just talking about, Jack. And then they would preemptively tighten uh, to make sure that it didn't get embedded and, and, and spiral out of control. What people like Dudley are saying, and actually Mohamed elarian as well, is that what the Fed's new regime is, there's a, a clear regime shift in their power. What they're saying is, we're, we're going to wait until we actually see the whites of inflation's eyes. We're going to wait until the inflation is actually right on top of us, we see it; it's actually happening, and only then will we tighten. And what Dudley, Muhammad Alaryan, and many others—Larry Summers is another one—they're all saying is you'll have waited too long because of the 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 long and variable lag in how monetary policy works. You're going to have to stomp on the brakes in a massive way. Yeah. Dudley was quoted as saying, "We'll get to at least three and a half or four percent on the ten-year in this new framework." That uh, Powell and the Powell Fed are are using.
1: So, uh, Vice Chairman uh, Dudley Ed says very well the thing you disagree with most.
3: Yes, definitely, (laughs) I I completely disagree with him, because what's behind this is this this perverse Phillips curve stuff. The the basically what he's saying that the is that. When uh, you get unemployment going down too low, that's when inflation happens. So what happens is, is, is that you get to a point when uh, there's so few extra workers in the economy uh, to, uh, to hire that inflation starts to go up because you're bidding up wages. And when you bid up wages, um, pe- pe- more people have money in their pockets, and they start buying stuff, and the price of those things go up, and everything spirals out of control. He's saying we need to stop that from happening, and the way that we're going to do it, and this is what he said when he was a Fed chair or a Fed president. He said in 2017, "quote If we were not to withdraw accommodation, the risk would be that the economy would crash to a very, very low unemployment rate and generate inflation. So, in order to uh, make sure that we don't get that inflation, let's throw people out of work, let's raise rates, throw people out of work." And by doing that, we will stop the inflation uh, uh, bugaboo from from hitting us. The economy crash to a low
1: rate of unemployment. It's terrible, and everyone's working.
3: (laughs) Crash to a very very low unemployment rate. And you see the, the wording there. You caught the crash, but even the very very low, as if very very low unemployment rates are bad. That's what he's saying. He's saying a low low unemployment rate crashes the economy so you have to jack up rates this is the this is the paradigm that that Summers is using that Muhammad Aliarian's using that Bill Dudley's using that's the old paradigm and that's the paradigm where at the end of the cycle just when you thought your paycheck was going to start you know humming along with everyone else asset prices have been going up but your paycheck is not just when you know things are getting going kabam the fed comes in they start jacking up rates And the whole cycle falls apart, and uh, you know half of the people who got into the to the cycle at the end get unemployed again. So, to me, that's that's a perversity. Uh, And and the question is is, if you don't do that, what happens to inflation? Because that's the regime that we're in now. They're not doing that anymore.
2: And I've got a question for you: To what degree uh, is Bill Dudley is Larry Summers? Do they still exert influence? It's my understanding that these people are kind of on the outs. You know, they are well respected, but they are not in positions of power. In other words, like people who are actually on the FOMC uh, committee, their opinion matters a lot more than what these people who are writing columns matters, right?
3: Yeah, exactly. I think that uh, th- this is where the proof is in the pudding in terms of the bond vigilantes, because I think of the bond vigilantes as front runners. I don't think of them as intimidators. They're not intimidating the Fed into doing what they want to do. Ah, uh, the Fed said over and over again. Many members of the Fed that we're just going to do what we want to do. Uh, we're looking at the stuff that we're going to look at, and we've told you what it is, and that's it. But the bond vigilantes are saying we think you have it wrong. We think that Summers, Ellerian, uh, and uh, and Dudley are right that when uh, that when when we get to the point that all this stimulus gets into the system. Inflation will rise so much that you guys are going to have to slam on the brakes. And so we are going to front run that and send rates up ahead of time. So that's where the short position comes from, because they think they can benefit from this eventuality.
2: Yeah. Right, uh, and I, I want to point out that. Sorry, go ahead, Ash.
3: No, no, I was just going to say just to underline this point. the The
1: big picture issue here is, you know, you what we've seen is we've seen this tremendous uh, run up in asset prices, particularly in U.S. equity markets, uh, uh, over the last five years. Uh, and 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 the point is is one that's very well taken, which is just as the economy begins uh, to start humming along in a way that. Uh, ordinary wage earners begin to participate in it with some job uh stability with some opportunities maybe some overtime those kinds of things uh then suddenly you start hearing talk about taking away the punch bowl uh and you know the question is and look we can argue the converse we can see right now that uh all item CPI is above uh, is above two percent. Uh, obviously, there's always a risk of things overheating, uh, but it really does seem the definition of inflation, this idea of a general rise in prices. Uh, we know that there's in, there's there's energy price inflation that's a huge factor when you look at all item. When you net it out and just look at core, uh, it's much more modest, much more moderate. But really, the inflation that people are feeling, if you talk to if you talk to ordinary Americans, people who aren't economists who are sitting at the kitchen table paying bills, they talk about generally it's. The same three things that I keep hearing. Number one. Healthcare is terrifying for everyone, right? You lose your job, and you know you just need something as simple as an appendectomy, uh, and suddenly you wind up in debt uh, for a decade. Terrifying thing. Prices have been rising consistently in healthcare. Number two, the cost of education. Ask any parent in America; it's crippling. It's terrifying. It's awful. Uh, and number three, the thing that we're hearing increasingly uh, is about the price of food inflation. It's something um, you know that I feel certainly that when you you go out to get a hamburger, there clearly is a rise. And the price of food. What do you think about that from the broader perspective? From the perspective uh, of what Americans feel uh, when they look at their bills at the end of the month?
3: Well, I think of uh, the anecdote you told right before we came on about Bill Dudley. uh, You know, being one of these economists who was talking about iPads, you know, uh, and deflation. uh, The guy's not living in the real world. he, he's living in his world of models. That's the kind of inflation you're talking about. The inflation, another p- uh, part of inflation that I worry about, where the two come right together, that is asset price inflation and real inflation in, in the real world, is house prices. Because for the yeah. first time, we're seeing not just house prices going up, which is the asset price inflation slash uh, real inflation for those who aren't owners. But we're also seeing apartment uh, prices reflect this. So when you price people out of the market in, uh, you know, first-time home buyers, they're going to start, uh, you know, bidding up the price of rentals. And so that's a part yeah. of inflation that is very pernicious. It's one of the largest in the inflation basket, and that's the sort of thing that, yes, down the line, uh, it could surprise the Fed and cause them to do exactly as Dudley. And all the rest of them are saying uh, is going to happen. Well, you know, absolutely. And now you have uh, not just this challenge where you talk about, uh,
1: you know, the interests of people who own assets versus the interest of people who don't, but you also have an intergenerational impact where you have uh, people, perhaps blue collar workers who bought houses 30 years ago, uh, and you look at where they are uh, compared to their kids who are in similar jobs. And it is a real, Real significant challenge uh, for the country. By the way, I should say though, uh, with regard to uh, Mr. Dudley, apparently I believe I owe him an apology. I just googled that iPad story, March fourteenth, two thousand eleven, for CNBC. The headline I wrote about the iPad story: Fed President impersonates Marie Antoinette. That was probably unfair. Uh, (laughs) Funny, but unfair.
3: Yes. Let me uh, let me say one other thing. uh, I have an interview that's very interesting uh, coming up with uh, Dario Perkins, who is uh, someone who's very sympathetic to uh, the, the 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 shift in policy. Uh, but he's talking about actually the fiscal policy shift. There are two shifts that are going on uh, simultaneously. There's the one that we're talking about, the whites of the eyes of uh, Fed policy shift. And then there's the fiscal shift that we see with Bidenomics that it does seem is catching a a bid also in in Europe as well. What uh, Dario is saying is that it's the fiscal side where you know, deficit spending, putting money in people's pockets directly, really is going to be the thing that down the line leads to more inflation. That's the, the thing that is going to uh, make a difference for wage earners, but also eventually lead to, to more inflation. What, if it were me and I were running policy, I would have a, a much more loose fiscal and tighter monetary policy. I wouldn't have loose, loose, and I wouldn't have tight, tight. And if I had to choose one to be loose with, it would be fiscal over monetary. Yeah, a very nuanced point there, Ed. Uh, unfortunately, it's one that relies
1: on Congress uh, to get things done uh, as opposed to, you know, 12 men and women in a room on the FOMC. Um, I should probably say uh, we're getting a lot of comments coming into us, a lot of questions. We should probably jump in and ask them. Uh, the first one is precisely to this point uh, from Bad Boy54377. Uh, what do you guys make of Fed Governor Kaplan's remarks today? In case you haven't seen it, uh, Fed Governor uh, Kaplan. Kaplan uh, out of Dallas, Fed, uh, has basically called for beginning to think about raising rates.
3: Isn't that what the Bonville Janneys are telling you? They're telling you that Kaplan, and, and he's a hawk, You know, uh, he's more hawkish, that this is the, this is the, the direction of, of uh, travel, that at the margin, we're going to see the Fed moving in the direction of the markets as opposed to the reverse. So they're all piling in to the uh, negative bets. Uh, it's interesting i have sympathy for that concept that the fed is not as uh, impervious to um ch- the changes in the real economy as they make it out to be yeah,
2: yeah i think it's an important point so on the one hand he's saying similar things to larry summers um and to sorry who was the other gentleman who was uh oh, Elarian? no, Arion, no. no and, it's the, and other also the other Phil one bill dudley Bill Dudley, yeah, he's saying similar things to Bill Dudley and Larry Summers. however, a huge difference in that uh, you know Robert Kaplan is a president of the Dallas Fed. He actually has real power um unlike um you know th- those other people who are you know kind of like uh junior from the sopranos like they he w- they were a character who had a lot of power now, but th- they are on the outs um whereas Robert Kaplan is is more he's he's in the crew he's he's doing the action, so I think that is. Uh, very significant. However, as you say, you know, he is known to be somewhat of a hawk. I think it remains to be said, though. I mean, we had Powell's uh, address on Wednesday. The Federal Reserve remains committed to price stability, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and um, you know, manageable unemployment. And it really wants to get unemployment much, much lower. And I, I think the Fed has been pretty clear. If you take them at their word, that um, they they are not going to taper. Uh, unless they see, you know, unemployment well, well below where where it is now. What? Hey, Jack.
1: Understand? I should I should add, uh, throw in the Sopranos metaphor of your choosing. Uh, but uh, Governor Kaplan not on the FOMC, not a
2: voting member uh, this term. Right, but he is still within the body of the Fed. But yeah, thank you. For absolutely. That.
3: Yeah. No. Absolutely. And let me say, by the way, you know that uh, when we think about this uh, going forward, we've got to think that. Uh, the question really is is how quickly do we get down to uh, low, low levels of unemployment? Uh, because the quicker we get there, if we believe that the, that's where the Fed is, uh, the more likely they are to raise. And I think that the implicit uh, statement that you're making, Jack, is that the Fed is a de facto, uh, employment mandate uh, dominator that is is that the employment mandate is now dominant over the inflation mandate, and w- what we have to be watching is the level of unemployment the the rate of of inflation is less important in this new paradigm yeah, yes,
2: and in fact, they want to overshoot that two percent target and they think that they derive that authority because they have undershot it for so long
1: yeah. By the way, uh, questions absolutely blowing up. I think we have more questions on this episode than we ever have before, so I'm going to dive back in uh, and hit some of them. Tommy Cow, 555Q, uh, how do you evaluate crypto tokens when we don't have the visibility to their financials while all cryptocurrencies are appreciating against fiat uh, in addition? Tommy, uh, that is the uh, $2 trillion question. It's a great one. Uh, you know, For uh, for example, with Bitcoin, uh, the internal financials obviously are not quite like what you would see uh, with an equity. Um, it is transparent in the sense that you can see the number of wallet addresses. You can gauge transaction volume. Uh, but for some of the uh, more abstract ones, you're exactly right. It's just a bet on the future, a highly uh, a highly speculative bet on the future, uh, but one that uh, investors in the space believe uh, is worth thinking about because of the trajectory uh, that that bet has taken in the past. And I should say, as we were talking offline, A16 zo that's Andreessen Horowitz, are looking to raise a new fund. uh, million to a $1 billion. Dollars. That would effectively double uh, their exposure to the space. I think they're at about $515 uh, million on their last fund. Hot, red hot. Also, uh, final point, a report coming out of Stratfor uh, talking about Ethereum uh, potentially going to 10,000 today, uh, trading uh, obviously at about a quarter of that right now, uh, looking at network effects and things that are very similar to what our own Raoul Pal has been saying for some time.
3: Let's let's get some more of these questions. All right.
1: Um, So um, here's another one, Um, also from Tommy Cow, actually, as I see.
3: Are we headed towards uh, Japanification, Ed? Yeah, I would say that that is less likely. Uh, uh, The way that I would describe Japanification is, I would say that uh, basically you had a problem in terms of the paradigm shift. Uh, The Japan was stuck in the old paradigm. Uh, but they needed to move to the new fiscal dominance paradigm. So one way to think about it is is that they said, look, here's what we're going to do, is we are going to shock the system with massive deficit spending every time we have a recession, and that shock will help us uh, get out of the recession, and then we'll move uh, to a a new sustainable economy. But every single time that happened... They would immediately, uh, you know, start raising taxes before they got to full employment, and then they would fall back into a recession again. Then they would go with massive deficit spending, and then, you know, the economy would get back on its uh, feet again. And then they would again try to tax away that, that benefit rather than waiting for the economy to get to get to full employment again. Meanwhile, uh, they were subsidizing the losers, or what people call zombies. Uh, in the in the corporate space, there was no structural adjustment whatsoever, because they had zero rates, and they were doing quantitative easing. So they continue to do this over and over again, and that is futile. Uh, we have done that in uh, the United States really for 12 years. Uh, are we going to do it for another uh, bunch of years? It all depends on where the Fed goes. Because, as I said, my view is is, is that what we want is is we want loose fiscal and we want uh, tighter monetary policy together until we get to full employment. Uh, and 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 by doing that, you avoid uh, you know slamming on the brakes with inflation the way that Summers talks about, the way that Dudley talks about. I think that's a much better way of of getting things done. So, I don't think we're we're there, but we're halfway there. I have to say, Chair Harrison has a nice ring to it. <laughs> yes. Uh,
2: if I could add my two cents, I think that the spirit of the question, Japanification, um, you know, extremely reduced volatility in in currencies, in equities, that the backstop is always there. Sure, I see that. I think it's it's quite apparent. I would highlight two differences. Number one is demographics. Japan uh, is a very very old country, and that is perhaps why it's needed such a large amount of quantitative easing of asset purchases. And the U.S. We're an old country too, but we have a somewhat vibrant uh, immigration system, and immigrants tend to be younger, so we sort of have this renewal. uh, So we're not. We're sort of aging at this, you know, incredible rate that Japan is, that that Europe is. That's number one. Number two, I just think in terms of scale, I think the scale of uh, the Bank of Japan's interventions really have, you know, we're nowhere close to there. I mean, if you read "Princes of the Yen" by uh, Dr. Professor Richard Werner, I mean, there was a time when there were there was a city, city square, I believe, or perhaps a park, a very small plot of land in Tokyo that had a greater market value than the entire state of California. Uh, yep. Likewise, I was actually reading a book by Peter Tokyo Lynch. Imperial Palace. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. Ash, always there. To I appreciate it. Um, and then I was actually reading a, a, a book by Peter Lynch. He was noting that there was a recent uh, pu- uh, IPO, a, a public offering of a old, um, basically like a telecom stock. It was sort of like an AT&T stock, but it was very small, very old, not growing quickly. And it was worth more than AT and T and Bell and all these other stocks combined. So, and obviously that was a result of the uh, Bank of Japan's imp- unprecedented intervention. So, I don't think we're there yet. Could we get there? Of course, but I don't think we're as close as perhaps some people think.
3: Jack, what are you it's worried about? It's, it's, it's what not what what I, like the Fed. You know, like uh, I, I was there at the time, so you're talking NTT, and uh, so I remember <laughs> those those things. So when you talk about these things historically, I'm thinking about them as as they actually happen. And you know that was part of the internet bubble. Uh, uh, that we had as well, we had stocks that uh, I think were, were pretty ridiculous uh, a, a decade later. But we were able to recover from that. It's it's that uh, that housing uh, stuff where there's debt allocated. That's, that's the thing that really gets you.
1: Liberty sees me. It stands by me and celebrates me for who I am. When I come into the office, I feel that I belong here. I don't have to be corporate America Gabby. I can just bring Gabby to work. Reach your potential and find a job you love at Liberty Mutual.
2: We offer development training, rich benefits, and a culture that lets you bring your whole self to work so you can pursue your tomorrow today. Ready to consider a career at Liberty Mutual? Find out how at libertymutualcareers.com.
1: Right. Yeah, NTT Docomo. Jack, I, I don't know why you're so worried. It's not like the Fed is ever going to buy uh, corporate securities. Come on. <laughs> that's That's fair. I mean... Yeah, that's true. By the way, we're joking, of course. The Fed is uh, under the 13.3 programs, done uh, precisely that since the beginning uh, of the COVID crisis. But still, to your point, Jack, absolutely nowhere near the scale uh, relative to the capital markets in yeah. Japan that we've experienced I, in the US.
2: I, I got something. Ash, you're absolutely right. They, they did do that under that program. They didn't buy as much simply because they ha- didn't have to. So I'll say this they, the Rubicon has been crossed, but they're not at Rome yet. I'll say that.
1: Mm. Waiting into the Rubicon, the title of your memoir. It'll be like you're slouching toward Gamora, Jack. It has potential. (laughs) There we go. Here's one from Alan Givray, uh, deflation or inflation, Your uh, dollar based debt deflation versus dollar collapse and hyperinflation, but the spirit of his question, uh, and really about deflation versus inflation, we've been talking about the inflation risk during this conversation, uh, but nothing on those uh, who have been talking about the risk for incredible uh, or increasing, I should say, uh, deflation based largely uh, on the technological drivers that we see uh, and the uh, automation in, and, uh, and uh, offshoring of work.
3: Yeah. uh, So your question is about inflation and deflation. Uh, Can you repeat that question one more time? Sure. So uh, Alan Javray says, inflation
1: or deflation, and then his specific question. uh, And this is a little bit more in the weeds, so we can address the broader picture if you like, Ed. Uh, Euro dollar based deflation versus dollar collapse hyperinflation. Obviously, he's talking about the implications for this uh, in the currency market.
3: Yeah, you know, uh, when people start talking about hyperinflation and dollar collapse and things like that, generally, I I think that uh, I would consider those outlier events. So if you're looking for, you know, something that could potentially, it's like Dogecoin going to a dollar. Uh, it could, have, you know, Or let's let's say Dogecoin going to ten dollars. You know, maybe you want to put a one percent of your basket into that into that uh, thought. But really, it's probably not going to happen. Um, there are special circumstances that, that would allow it to happen. I think that when we're looking at the inflation numbers, I, I think Jim Bianco is probably right when he says, "Look, I'm only talking like 2.6 inflation. I'm I'm an inflationista, but I'm not talking about even 1970 style inflation. Even if you got 2.6 percent on a persistent basis, that would be enough to change." uh bond yields dramatically uh, large enough such that uh the, you know you would have huge losses on your bond portfolio, so you don't really need to see dramatic changes to see uh, some big changes just from an investing perspective yeah. By the way, on a lighter note, we took a bet. Uh, I think it was last
1: week about whether Doge was going to be higher or lower. Although I'm bearish on Doge uh, secularly, I said higher, and we are now trading at about uh, well, just under 33 cents, uh, up from where we were last week. So the uh, Doge rally continues. Week.
3: I up. think every time we do this, uh, I, I think this is the the drinking word. If there are people who are pounding brews right now, every single time we say Doge, they they have to take a sip. Yeah. Well,
2: Ed, with you, you talking about pounding brews and and wearing a dark green uh, shirt, I almost feel like you're in a fraternity at Dartmouth.
3: <laughs> yeah, the, the Dartmouth green is a little bit—it's uh, a little darker than this, and uh, you know, uh, it's like they say in Vegas—you know, everything stays uh, stays in Hanover. <laughs> Animal House did not, though. That went on to be a global phenomenon. Yes, definitely.
2: By the way, uh, so you mentioned hyperinflation. I'm I'm actually reading a pretty famous book now, Lords of Finance, and so just getting into the the Weimar Republic, that was an incredibly intentional decision by the Reichsbank to devalue the currency. So you know, it's it's a common, you know, if you're a debtor, if you owe money, you love it when the currency that your debt is denominated in. Goes down in value, so it was it was intentional. And by the way, people people were reporting, doctors were reporting, patients had psychosomatic illnesses, where because the price of bread would go from hundred to three hundred, you know, in over the course of a week, doctors were patients had illnesses where they were like, yeah, I'm forty trillion years old. I have I have two trillion children. That they would that they would say that in you know parlance. Wow, that is interesting. I hadn't heard that. Um, Ed,
1: here's a question that just sounds like it was custom tailored for you, Uh, Balu, the Carefree Bear Q. What is your take on short end U.S. rates moving lower while long end moving mostly higher? Is this collateral demand? And if so, how does
3: one square this with the quote expectations hypothesis? Expectations hypothesis. Very interesting. Yeah, I mean, technically, you can have some uh, some movement. Uh, you know, because if you take a look at the curve and you and you derive it into uh, you know what you think the the interest rate should be um, in three months or in ten years uh, over time, and then there's a, a premium based on liquidity for different uh, um, different times in the the term structure. You can build out a yield curve, um, but there's going to be some movement around that. So for instance I think that if you look at the short end of the curve we could even have negative rates uh mildly negative just for pure technical reasons. And then if you have um gangbusters economy with you know closing the gap to the previous level of unemployment, you could still see rates going up somewhat. So you could see the yield curve steepening um, you know via both ends of the of the yield curve. But I don't really think that the the short end of the yield curve is uh, has a lot of room down in terms of uh, you know how far negative you can go. Just because, unless the Fed is telling you that they're going to go negative, or you fear that they're going to go negative, uh, there's no reason to for the for yields to go very substantially negative. Yeah, I don't know if you guys are
1: watching the comments. Uh, but they're absolutely ripping. Uh, doing this live uh, is just so much fun and so cool. And it's great to be doing this with you and to be interacting in real time and reading the questions. You're welcome, Alan. I hope I pronounced your last name correctly. Um, so um, here's a question as we get uh, toward the close um, that uh, I'm I've been eager to ask both of you. It comes to us from Echoing Owl. And the question is, what's the dinner choice
2: Friday night, Ash, Ed, and Jack? Jack. Ooh, man well let's see I think uh, for a snack I had before this I had an arugula salad uh, with some bacon bits that I made um you know I may I may have some pasta and chicken um, from last night sorry to uh, you know wish I could say something a little more uh, interesting uh, last Friday I did go to quite a, a very interesting sake bar downtown with a, a few a few of my buddies um, and there the food was, was very good but uh Ed how about mm-hmm. yourself
3: who have, you have know, to John think, Kerry. This I is mean, like one percent stuff. Dick for that, by the way, because uh, mm-hmm. well, as soon as you say arugula, uh, I, I'm I'm thinking. I don't know if you know. Back from 2008, when uh, Barack Obama was on the campaign trail, he was I, talking to him about food prices. they were like, "Have you seen the food prices? Like the price that we're paying for food?" And his the first words out of his mouth was like, "Yeah, you know, the price of arugula." It's going to the roof, and uh, I had to laugh because I don't even know what arugula is. Uh, uh, you know, hey, hey, I, I, hey, my Jack. my 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 meal is going to be whatever my uh, whatever is served to me, whatever whatever I can <laughs> good get. Answer, be, yeah, good answer, uh, Good answer. You know, from from takeout or McDonald's or whatever it might be. So, I, I'm a, I'm a little bit more basic, I, I imagine. Jack, are you having dinner with John Kerry tonight? No,
2: you say that because I'm because I eat arugula. I must be such a hoity-toity fancy lad. It, it sounds like you
1: might be. I don't know. I don't want to like accuse you here, but it sounds like you might be.
2: I think President Obama was unfairly maligned for his comment. I think I am too. <laughs>
1: Hey, you know what I'm having dinner for dinner tonight? I'm going to bear burger and I'm getting grass fed beef hamburgers because now dining in New York uh, indoors is open again. And like the pleasure of eating scalding hot burgers with melting cheese is something that I've just missed and craved. I do not cook. I'm a classic New York city bachelor fridge is totally empty so i've been ordering food in except for like maybe like a bowl of cereal in the morning so like going out and having scalding hot burgers with dripping melting cheese sauteed onions uh just absolutely delicious that's the plan for tonight sounds good i like it
2: yeah i'm pretty hungry listen to that
1: jack you should meet me it's in your
2: hood are you you're you're not going to the one on uh 88th and first are you uh, is there one? Uh, yeah, I think that is the one I'm going to. Oh, wow. Small world. Very close to my neighborhood.
3: Well, now anyone who's in New York, they, they know where to get you guys. You know, They can ask some more questions after. I like it.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah, it's like the Real Vision Daily Briefing after hours. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds we good. Should do, Buy you guys a drink.
1: Yeah, we should do it at PJ Clark's at some point for all of our New York uh, listeners and viewers.
2: Oh, yeah, let's do that. There's a place that um, our head of business, uh, George... Took me to a while back. It's called Bathtub Gin. It's one of those places that it's, it's so cool that it doesn't have a sign. Oh um, yeah. And it's actually a really cool place. I was I went there uh, again with my a few friends uh, two weekends ago. And yeah, that, we should have something there. It's it's very um, you know old fashioned. It's kind of like a speakeasy vibe. Good place for Jack, everything. Jack, too cool to have a
1: sign. You're not doing any uh, yourself any favors here with not sounding hoity toity. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, So, gentlemen, as we come to a close here, we're at about almost the hour mark now. Uh, We've run long, as we always do on these Friday briefings, but it's been a lot of fun. Final thoughts that you'd like to leave the audience with?
3: Yeah, that that is a good question. I mean, we've been all positive and so forth, so I don't want to bring negativity. But uh, um, I'm I'm generally positive uh, on the US economy. I think that uh, the US economy is going to outperform for at least a good three months. Uh, europe is is behind,, uh, but you know they're going to be coming out of it. the The place to watch in terms of outperformance or underperformance is actually Asia because you know they're the ones who supposedly came out of the pandemic the best, the earliest. They've been outperforming. but really, some of the things that you've seen, and I'm not talking about India, I'm talking about elsewhere, uh, suggest that uh, we still have worries until uh, you know, We get herd immunity. uh, We we don't know what's going to happen. So uh, right now, the U.S. is the best bet over the short term in terms of outperformance. Yeah,
2: China, uh, Asia—that it really is key because they consume so many commodities. Oil, copper have been you know surging. So if you see a slowdown in China, that could uh, you know pour put an ice bath on that commodity rally. One thing I have my eye on is. Rising yields in Europe, which Ed, I, you know, I know you have your eye on as well. Um, and that makes it slightly more attractive for capital to flow into Europe, which would be good for the Euro. Um, but really I want to close with a thought that is kind of simple, because you know, Ash, Ed, you, you guys think at a pretty high level, you we you guys we've kind of been talking like above the rim, but I just want to close with a very simple thought, which is that the stock market is up and that the Nasdaq has had, you know. Uh, is it has had positive months for the past, I believe, five months. Um, so all this, oh, yields are going to rise, and that's going to be kryptonite for tech stocks. Which, by the way, I was saying. By the way, I, I, we were all. I was wrong. Uh, people who said that were completely wrong. The S&P 500 uh, yesterday made all-time highs, and I actually was just looking at a technical indicator, which is breadth, which is the percentage of stocks in an index which participate in the rally. And in April, we uh, had the best monthly breadth. On record, 95% or more of US equity benchmarks closed above their 200 day moving average in 18 sessions um, for all the trading sessions in that month. So it's literally the best on record. So, your economic optimism, Ed, is clearly shared by equity investors. That's all I'll say.
3: And before Ash uh, uh, leaves with his final word, I don't think you were wrong, Jack. I think you were right. It's just that we've taken a pause what happens if rates go to 2% or 2.3% it might be different i think uh we're, we're we're in the goldilocks period at least for right now uh and so let's enjoy it for the the time being but if rates rise again i don't think that that that, that picture is going to look quite the same
1: here's what i'm thinking about guys burgers and beer I'm thinking about it right now because that's what I'm craving, and I'm also thinking about it because New York City is in the middle of a reopening, going to 75% uh, internal capacity for dining uh, next week, I believe May 7th, a week from today. Uh, This is something that's going to be really interesting to see what is going to happen here in the financial capital of the United States uh, as this reopening trade happens. You know, I was out last night, went to my first party post pandemic. It's really, really weird talking to people uh, when they're not wearing masks. It's weird being (laughs) indoors. It's just like super surreal. I did my first indoor dinner uh, this week. And uh, the thing that killed me, and if you've recently gone out and you've been locked up for a long time in your apartment uh, like I have, it was the echoes in the restaurant. I would hear people talking, you know, at the table like behind me, and I couldn't filter it out because I hadn't been in a space where there were other people talking. It's a really weird experience. I know people in other areas of the country where they didn't lock down quite as hard uh, as we did here in New York City, obviously, with the intense population density uh, and the incredible, incredible carnage that we had uh, last year in the spring. But it is a really surreal feeling. So I'm thinking about burgers and beer. I'm thinking about what's going to happen with the animal spirits. Uh, Obviously, as Ed pointed out, uh, 21% rise in incomes. Obviously, this is some impact uh, from uh, from the fiscal stimulus. But it's going to be really interesting to see what this summer looks like. Are we going to have Roaring Twenties Part 2? Uh, and if so, what's the impact that it's going to have on the animal spirits of the economy? That's what I'm thinking about right now, and thinking about it in the context of actually ordering a burger and a beer.
3: <laughs> Excellent. Sounds good. Well, have, have, have lots of fun, you guys. I hope that uh, the two of you have a great time at your uh, burger place tonight. And uh, hopefully, I'll see you in New York sometime soon.
2: Yeah, and Ash, for next week, you can't forget the net, okay?
3: I will
1: definitely remember. I'll put it, I'll prop it up on the bookshelf. Ed, Jack, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for watching, everyone. Thank you for participating in the conversation.